The sermon text this morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. I'm going to begin at verse 11. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out into Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursed is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he hath said shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye shall receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. We thank you that it is your word. And so you are speaking to us now. Father, pour out your spirit upon us. Open our, our, our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts so that we might be taught by you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. What's wrong with this world? Say, I was wondering that. What is wrong with this place? And when we ask that question, we're also asking simultaneously then, what does it need? The way you answer the first question will dramatically affect how you answer the second question. What's wrong with this world is a, is a setup, is a, is a lead up to then, what do we need? What's the diagnosis? What's the treatment? The central answer of the Bible is that our problems, all of our problems, all flow from the problem of sin. All of our problems flow from the problem of sin. And therefore, what the world fundamentally needs is forgiveness. What the world fundamentally needs is to be forgiven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is what we're celebrating this morning, it says in Mark and in, in the other gospel accounts that he went straight into the temple. He went straight into the temple. So as we think about what does Palm Sunday mean, what does God have for us as we meditate on these things, the thing that I wanna zero in on this morning is this fact that he goes straight into the temple. Whatever it is that he's up to has to do with the temple. And then over the next few days, he keeps returning to the temple. So this, this particular section of Mark's gospel uh, we're looking at because of this pattern. He goes in, he looks at everything, which is 
Interesting in and of itself, he just looks at it all. He goes out for the night, comes back into the temple again. He clears it, throws over tables, uh, clears the money changes, then he goes back out, and then he comes back in again. He keeps returning to the temple, and he's going to spend the last few days preaching and teaching in the temple. And, and, the, and the point that I want to press home to you this morning is that Jesus, through all of these things, is insisting that the point of his life, the point of his mission is to fulfill what the temple always pointed to, which is what the world needs, the forgiveness of sins. So he keeps returning to the temple again and again because he says what that was supposed to do, it's not doing anymore, and what it was supposed to do now is going to be accomplished in me. So let's look at this text together. If you have your Bibles, open them. Mark 11, we're gonna work through the text that I just read. I picked up in verse 11, which is actually right after Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey, on the palm branches, with the shouts of Hosanna. You can look back at verse 10. That's the, the cries, blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Jesus goes, as we just said, directly into the temple, and Mark says, he looked around, verse 11. When he had looked around at everything, it was evening, so we went out to Bethany with the 12. The next day, Jesus is on his way back into Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree without any fruit on it and pronounces a curse on it. You see this in verses 12 to 14. Then he goes into the temple and he cleanses it. This is the part where he's driving everyone out. He's turning over tables. He's uh, particularly turning over the tables of those who are selling uh, doves or pigeons. He's not allowing anyone, it says, to walk in the temple for most of the day. <laughs> he's sort of just shut the whole thing down for most of the day, again until evening, and then he goes out again. Again, we see that in verses 15 and 16. We're also told that he was preaching and teaching, um, particularly on the passages from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7 during much of this time and held a rapt audience of many. Uh, so in, in uh, verse 17 it says, and he taught saying unto them, it is, is it not written my house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. Now um, remember that the, the temple complex is about 30 acres. It's, it's a pretty large area, and, and he's, he's there. It says he doesn't let anybody um, uh, carry anything for, for, um, for a, a good period of time. Um, and um, and he, he's there, it says in, in verse 19, even until evening, and then he leaves. So likely he's turning over tables. There's a lot of them. They're selling um, animals for sacrifices. He's driving out money changers, but he's also preaching as he does it, and he's preaching for most of the day, and he's developing, we're told in verse 17, from these two texts, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, is taken from Isaiah 56, and then that quote, you have made it a den of thieves, is taken from Jeremiah chapter seven. So those are his sermon texts throughout the day. He's probably not just mentioning those snippets, it says he's teaching on them. So for most of the day, he's giving uh, messages on Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah seven, and he's holding the attention of a pretty large audience such that the chief priests and scribes feel powerless to do anything. So again, we see that in verses 17 
through 19. The people, the, 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 lead, the leaders, the scribes, the chief priests, they want to do something, but they can't because they're afraid of all the people who are astonished at his teaching. Coming back into Jerusalem the next morning, the cursed fig tree has withered to its roots. Peter remembers what happened, points that out. See that in verses 20 and 21, to which Jesus replies that Peter should have faith in God and he may even command this mountain to be cast into the sea. In fact, whatever any disciple asks in prayer will be granted, particularly the forgiveness for others, particularly forgiveness for others so that God will forgive all their sins. We see that in Mark 11, verses 22 through 26. The thing that I want to zero in on this morning is that final couple of verses, 25 and 26. Amid all the drama, right, you have him riding in on a donkey, you've got the cries of Hosanna, you've got the, the clearing of the temple, you've got the children shouting and singing, you've got the scribes pretty fumed, um, you've got the cursed fig tree, and then the discussion about it, and it's, you know, if you say to this mountain, it will be cast into the sea, whatever you ask in prayer, it will be done. Amid all that, which I think seems enormous, seems dramatic, seems world-changing, seems cataclysmic, and it is, Jesus says, but the thing I really want to drive home here is, if you stand praying and you remember that anyone has anything against you, forgive them so that you will be forgiven. Amid all the drama, that's the, it, it, okay, I mean, I know forgiveness is important, but why, why land there, Jesus? Why land there? I mean, even the prayer, I mean, you're thinking big prayers, anything you say, and, and you're thinking, you know, I mean, think like, you know, you're praying about politics, you're, you're praying about economics, you're, you're praying about the history of the world, maybe. And Jesus says, and so given that you could pray for anything, the thing you really want to zero in on is praying for forgiveness. You want to make sure you forgive those who have wronged you so that you too might be forgiving. So, so I want to begin there at the end of our text and push it out. Jesus is saying that the problem is forgiveness of sins. He's ridden into Jerusalem. He's cleaned, cleansed the temple. He's overturned tables, he cursed a fig tree, and he's in effect saying, guys, the problem is forgiveness of sins. That's the problem, why? Well, in the Old Testament, God established a system of sacrifice by which God promised to forgive the sins of Israel. If you look back at Leviticus, all through the book, for example, Leviticus is a sacrificial manual. It's the manual of the Old, Old, Old Testament Israelites and the priests telling them how to approach God. And the repeated refrain, as they bring animals, they kill animals, they put the blood in various places on the altar and in the holy place and so on, the repeated refrain over and over again is, God will accept it and he will forgive. God will accept it and he will forgive. God will accept it and he will forgive, it's all, all through. And then that's even picked up um, in Solomon's prayer of dedication for the temple. Remember Solomon then builds the temple and, and in his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8, it's, it's striking, but again, the repeated refrain all through 1 Kings 8 is he's talking about people praying towards the temple, 
when your people pray towards the temple, when they're on vacation and they pray towards the temple, when they're in exile and they pray towards the temple, when they've sinned and been judged and they pray towards the temple, the repeated refrain at the end of each of the, the sections of the prayer is, hear in heaven and forgive. Hear in heaven and forgive. Hear in heaven and forgive. Solomon has picked up, he understands that's the central thing the temple proclaims. When this system was fully functioning, it was to be the kind of light that would draw the nations so that they would all receive forgiveness. So that they would see, they would receive forgiveness. The temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, which is what Isaiah 56 says. And specifically, keying off of Solomon's temple dedication prayer, prayers for forgiveness. Prayers for forgiveness. Right? If, you, if you look at the sacrificial system, you look at the dedication prayer, the key, one of the key themes you get is, what do we need the temple for? So that God will forgive. So that when we have sinned, we can be forgiven. So that when we have sinned and we've been driven into exile, we can be forgiven. So that even the nations might see and pray and be forgiven. So the sacrifices of the temple and the tabernacle were assigned to Israel and the whole world that God forgives sins. That's what the temple and the tabernacle proclaim to Israel and to the world. God, the God of Israel, forgives sins. But what was happening at the time of Jesus is what had happened in the days of Jeremiah. So if we look at Jeremiah 7, that's one of the texts that Jesus is also preaching from, we see that they have people there in Jeremiah's day that are going through the motions of going to worship, going to the temple. They're even chanting slogans, we're told, in Jeremiah 7, 4. They're saying, they, they apparently go to the temple chanting, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Um, and, and Jeremiah says, and you are not getting it. You're not getting it. You've turned this place into a den of thieves and robbers. The problem, of course, is not with the temple. The problem, and it's, the problem is not even that people are bringing their sins to the temple. They were supposed to bring their sins to the temple, but the, they were supposed to bring them and leave them. Bring your sins and leave them. Confess them, forsake them, be forgiven, and leave them there. The problem was not with the temple. The problem was with the people sinning up a storm and then going to the temple is an act of empty ritual and formalism. This is the sort of thing that respectable Israelites do, you know. They go to the temple and they offer the, the, the sacrifice. They go to the temple for the feasts and so on. They're going for this empty ritual and formalism. But they had turned the temple into a den of thieves because they were bringing their sins with them as if they were stolen treasure. <laughs> rather than coming there to drop their sins off, rather than to bring their sins and say, God, take it. Take it away from me. They're bringing their sins with them and wearing them with pride. They're bringing their ways of life, their customs and everything. They've, they've said, no, this is, this is enlightenment. This is, this is what modern Israelites do. This is just how Israelite business goes. This is just the real world. This is just reality, man. And so they're carrying their sins with them and they're not dropping them off. They're not leaving them there. They're celebrating them even in the temple as if it was their spoil as if it was their treasure. They have no intention of giving them up, much less seeking forgiveness for any of them. And God says in Jeremiah 7 that when this happens, he will destroy the temple because it's become a place where sin is being spread instead of forgiven. 
You see this in Jeremiah 7, verses 12 through 14. Because they're using the temple as a place not to unload their sin, because they're using a, the temple as a place not to get rid of their sin, but rather in some various ways, just hold on to it, keep it, gather it together, the temple is now a place where sin is just being piled up. Rather than being a place where sin is sort of drawn and then destroyed so that people can leave clean, it's now become a place that's full of sin such that everybody that shows up there is actually getting contaminated. People are getting infected, and so it needs to be destroyed. Wound through this episode, the cleansing of the temple is a fair bit of Old Testament illusion and symbolism in addition just to the temple itself. Now the fact that Jesus walks into the temple that first night and looks around, what's he doing? Uh, that is rather reminiscent actually of the duties of a priest with regard to a leprous house. You can see this in Leviticus 14, but in Leviticus 14, a priest might be called if an Israelite believed that there was leprosy sort of in the house. It was on the walls or in the stones. And there's this, this instructions given to the priest that he's supposed to go inspect the house. And if it's, in fact, has leprosy in it, he's supposed to close it up and not let anybody in there for, for a week. And then he comes back, and if it still has leprosy in it after a week, he's supposed to break down the section that has the leprosy in it, and they close it up again for a while. And then they come back again, and, and if it comes back, the whole house has to be destroyed. The whole house has to be destroyed, not one stone left on another. If you combine uh, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they, they give the cleansing of the temple here right after the triumphal entry, but you might have read the gospel of John at some point and wondered, how come the cleansing of the temple is in John 2? Right? In, in, in John's gospel, you have the, the wedding of Cana, and then Jesus goes into the temple and turns over money changers, and you think, what in the world is, and, and, and uh, but if you hold it together, it's, it, it seems to me very likely that Jesus actually did this twice. It seems very likely that he actually did it at the beginning of his ministry, which is why John puts it there, and he also did it at the end of his ministry, which is why Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it at the end of his ministry, which would add an even more sort of reminiscence to this inspection theme. Is this house clean? Is the temple a clean house or is it a leprous house? He goes in, he, he knocks it down once, he's, and I'm, he's, I'll be back in three years. Comes back three years later, he looks around, it's still leprous, it's still full of thieves. It's, they're, they're still keeping out the nations. The, the, there's no forgiveness coming from this house. And so he comes back the next day and again, clears it, doesn't let anybody walk in it for a whole day, and is in effect saying, no, this place is unclean, it's gotta go. And in the following verses, in all of these accounts, Jesus begins to talk that way. The disciples say, you know, look at all these beautiful buildings. And Jesus says, you see all these beautiful buildings? I tell you the truth, not one stone is gonna be left on another. And this all comes following this. Jesus has proclaimed it unclean. Leprosy in the old covenant wasn't just a skin disease. You might commonly think of leprosy as just a skin disease, but in the Bible, it doesn't appear that way. I mean, again, just notice that a house can get leprosy, apparently. Um, clothing can have leprosy on it. So it's not just a skin disease. It's something broader than that. It seems to have been a fairly broad category of things that, that the Bible classified as just being ceremonially unclean. 
It was ceremonially unclean, which usually just meant that you needed to wash and wait until evening before you could go worship at the temple or the tabernacle. To be ceremonially unclean simply meant, in most cases, that you needed to wash, and in the evening you could go to the tabernacle. You could wash, and in the evening you would be clean. So if you read through Leviticus, or you read through Numbers, or Deuteronomy, and some of the places where it's going through the cleanliness laws, many of them say that. This, this means you're unclean, wash, and in the evening you're clean. Wash, and in the evening you're clean. Although some forms, like this house uncleanness, could last longer. The general point of this ceremonial system was to teach Israel that their entire lives mattered to God. That's the point, right? Because you've got uncleanness sort of everywhere in your life. If you're paying attention, if you read the law and you see what makes you unclean, it's sort of everywhere. The point was to teach Israel that their entire lives mattered to God and they needed to give thought to how every detail needed to honor him. Before you come to church, before you come to the tabernacle, before you come to the temple to offer sacrifice, give thought, what have you been doing this week? What have you touched? Where have you been? That was, that was the point. That they were being taught that every detail needed to honor him. Every detail is either pleasing to God and under his blessing, and therefore it's growing life. So if it's pleasing to God, it's growing life. It's spreading life or else it isn't pleasing to him, and in some way it's actually spreading death. Everything in this world is either under God's blessing and it's spreading life, or it's not under his blessing and it's actually spreading death. And the ceremonial system was an elaborate lesson in this reality. In the Old Covenant, as I noted a minute ago, washing could make you clean, but you were constantly becoming unclean again. And in the Old Covenant, uncleanness was contagious. So if, you know, if, if someone passed away in your family and you were there, there's a dead body in the room, you're unclean, right? Uh, if you had a baby, you were unclean. And this is not God saying having babies is bad. He's just saying, this is the world. The world you live in, there's uncleanness everywhere and what you touch, you, you get infected with. You need to watch out where you go. The really striking thing, one of the really striking things about the new covenant, and the coming of Jesus is that when he shows up, he's constantly touching or being touched by unclean people. But instead of him becoming unclean, Jesus begins cleansing the unclean. So think of the story of the woman with the flow of blood. Remember the story. She's, there, there she is. She's, she, she's been, what? It says she's gone to doctors and physicians and it's only gotten worse. This woman who has had a flow of blood for seven years has not been able to go to the temple for seven years. She's ceremonially unclean. And what does she do? She sees Jesus and in the crowd she reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment thinking, if I only touch him, I'll be made clean. She does and she's cleansed. And Jesus, of course, feels, he says, the power go out of him, stops in the middle of the crowd and says, wait, who touched me? And the disciples think, who touched you? Everybody touched you. Right? There's a crowd, right? Who touched me? And the woman comes and falls down and says, I, I did. Right? But what has happened? The really striking thing is throughout these thousands of years of old covenant history, what was supposed to happen was Jesus was supposed to become unclean. If you're touched by someone who's unclean, then you become unclean. 
But what's happened? It's reversed. The woman touches him and she becomes clean. And of course, she's also healed at the same moment. In Jesus, cleanness has become contagious. In Jesus, cleanness is now starting to spread through the gospel. But here, in our text, Jesus is essentially declaring the temple unclean. He's come and inspected it, he's cleansed it, but it's not really clean. They're not getting, they're not getting the idea. And now he's, he's going to say just shortly after this in Mark 13, not one stone's gonna be left on another. The whole thing's gotta, gotta go. It's not spreading life. It's not spreading forgiveness. It's spreading death. Everybody get, that goes there instead of getting clean is getting infected. It needs to go. Which brings us to the fig tree. There's another symbol loaded with Old Testament Meaning, fig trees were among the signs that the land of Canaan was a good land. So in Deuteronomy 8, we, we talk about the land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey. Well, sometimes when it's describing the glory of the land, it'll say, it's full of fig trees. And since we don't do a lot with fig trees, we're not nearly as excited. But they would have been really excited. You know, milk, honey, fig trees, olive uh, trees. It's frequently listed among those signs that the land of Canaan was a really good land. And so the phrase, every man under his own fig tree, became a common expression in Israel for the good life. You see this especially in the prophets and later on, but frequently it'll describe the good life as every man under his own fig tree. Every man under his own fig tree. It's, 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 a, it's a picture of blessing and beauty. And in the prophets, the fig tree became a common image for the nation of Israel as a whole. They were a fig tree. And sometimes they're a flourishing fig tree, and sometimes they're a fig tree that God is angry with and is threatening to destroy. So in context, the fig tree in our passage represents Israel, and it is parallel to the temple. It runs parallel to the temple, and that's why he's doing this side by side. Just as Jesus inspects the temple and finds it unclean, it's spreading disease, it's spreading sin, so too, when Jesus comes looking for fruit on the fig tree, he's displeased. The curse is also the same. An empty, destroyed temple is the same as a withered, fruitless tree of Israel. Incidentally, you notice that in the text here, it says actually it's not the season for figs. And some of you horticulturists might feel a little bad for the fig tree. <laughs> the poor guy didn't even have, you know, it wasn't his season, Jesus. Have a heart. But no, but actually what that does is underline the fact that this is a sign. It's, it's not as if Jesus is walking up to it um, during its fruitfulness, um, or it, it, it's not that. The point is, it, there's nothing wrong with the fig tree. The point is Jesus says, this is a sign. Yeah, it's not supposed to have fig, figs on it right now. Um, get it, I got it. But what we're talking about is the temple. It's supposed to have fruit. There should be fruit coming out of the temple. Yeah, this doesn't need to, but I'm gonna use it as an illustration. Don't feel bad for it. Trees like to be used for what God made them for. They do, they like it, trust me. Like the, all the trees that were used to make this floor, they like it. God made them for that. That's, but, but this is what's going on. It's underlining the fact that Jesus is using this as a sign. And the point is, you can't be a fruitful Israel if you aren't having your sins forgiven. 
You can't be a fruitful Israel if you're not having your sins forgiven. If you're not going to the temple to get your sins forgiven, that you won't be fruitful. And they can't go to the, the temple to get their sins forgiven because all, the sin ha- all, all that the temple has for them there is sin to infect them with. They go to the temple and they're not better, they're worse. They don't go to the temple to have their sins forgiven, to be- receive the blessing of God, and then to go out into the world and be fruitful. They're going to the temple to be infected with sin, and so they go out into the world cursed and fruitless. So given all of this, it does not seem at all likely that Jesus is changing the subject when he then tells Peter that believing prayer will uproot this mountain and cast it into the sea. He's talking about the temple, he's talking about the olive trees, talking about Israel, 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 and then he says, and if you say to this mountain, be uprooted and be cast into the sea, we should stop and ask, which mountain? This mountain? Which mountain? Well, they're actually at that very moment on their way to the temple, which is on Mount Moriah. He's talking about the temple mount. He's talking about the mountain where the temple is, or at the very least, the mountains upon which Israel was built. You have Mount Zion, you have Mount Moriah, and others. This mountain can be uprooted and cast into the sea. Don't believe that Jesus' primary point is to say, with prayer, you can do really big things. Now, that is a corollary point, but the primary things he's talking about right there is, if you say to this, if, if, you, if you recognize what's going on, Peter, if you understand the fig tree, if you understand that the temple is infected and it's got to go, and it's created a fruitless people, and, a, and a, it's an infected mountain, everything on here is just full of infection and contagion. If you understand all that, then you know it's got to go, Peter, and if you start praying in God's will and say, God, take it, it'll be done. He's encouraging Peter to understand all that's going on around him and say, get on board and ask God to do what needs to be done. You see what's on top of that mountain, the temple? It's doing all kinds of harm. It's cursing Israel. It's making us fruitless. It's not even letting the nations have their sins forgiven. So get on board, Peter, and pray that God would do what needs to be done and destroy this house, remove this mountain, cast it into the sea. And so... This brings us full circle back to the central problem. If that temple mount is removed and destroyed, how will Israel and the nations be forgiven? All through the Old Testament, how did you have your sins forgiven? Well, you went to the tabernacle, you went to the temple, you prayed to the temple, and the promise was God would forgive you. But if the temple is destroyed, if the temple is uprooted and cast into the sea, how will people have their sins forgiven? How will the nations be forgiven? Without the sacrifices and the priests in the temple, how can they know if they're actually forgiven? And, so, and then Jesus says, so given all of this, pray for the forgiveness of others. Forgive others who have wronged you so that you will be forgiven. I don't know how that helps. Sometimes we hear these commands, maybe they've bothered you. Make sure you forgive others or else you might not be forgiven. Has that ever bothered you? Forgive others who have, forg- who have, who have sinned against you or else uh, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Has that ever bothered you? I think sometimes we wonder if Jesus is veering somewhat close to some kind of works righteousness. Is Jesus saying if you do your part, God will do his? Which can really quickly start making us doubt and worry, have I really forgiven my mom? 
I mean, I said I forgave her. I'm pretty sure I forgave her, but I don't, did I completely forgive her? Or your dad? Or your spouse? Have you really, and then you begin to doubt. Well, if I haven't really forgiven, does that mean that God might not forgive me? Will I get to heaven and will he say, nice try, bud, but you only forgave your mom 70%. But I think this actually radically underestimates the task of forgiving sins. It radically underestimates the task of forgiving sins. The reason why I think it can be easy to read this story where you've got you know, cleansing the temple, the, you know, the sort of cursing of the fig tree, moving mountains, and then Jesus says, make sure you forgive. And we're like, okay, is that like taking out the garbage? I mean, it's, it seems little and can seem insignificant. The reason I think we read it that way is because we frequently underestimate the task of forgiving sins. To forgive is to release, to set free, to erase the debt of sin. But how can any mere human actually release another human from sin? Can you really do that? Can you let their sins go all by yourself? Remember, sins deserve death. Who, who gave you the authority to say, you don't have to die for that sin? You don't have that authority. Remember, this was the, the great objection of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees. No one can forgive, forgive sins except for God. Did you know they were right? <laughs> Only God can forgive sins. Only God can take away sins. And that was only possible through the shedding of blood. But even the blood of bulls and goats couldn't actually take away our sins. It had to be the blood of a perfectly obedient man who could truly represent us, Hebrews 10 says. That's why we don't have to keep offering the sacrifices over and over again because Jesus has finally offered the one true sacrifice. Christian forgiveness is a promise not to hold the sins of another against them for the sake of the blood of Christ. Let me say that again. Christian forgiveness is the promise not to hold the sins of another against them for the sake of the blood of Jesus. In other words, whenever a Christian forgives someone, they can only do so by holding up the blood of Jesus. There is no other kind of forgiveness. This is the only way forgiveness ever happens in this world. Mere goodwill may make for temporary civility, but it doesn't make for real Christian peace or joy. Someone says, I'm just very magnanimous. I'm going to let it go. You can't, you can't let it go. You're not God. That's not real Christian forgiveness. And what do we see in this world? People are like, I, I don't need Jesus. I'm just going to overlook that. How are things going? Is it getting better? Has sin been dealt with? Clearly it hasn't. But this is what people think. We don't need Jesus. I'm just going to think lofty thoughts, the goodwill of mankind. And what has it gotten us? A mess. Mere goodwill may make for temporary civility, but it doesn't make for Christian peace or joy. But whenever you hold up the blood of Jesus for someone else, which is what you're doing when you forgive, you say, here, Jesus died, I forgive you. Jesus died, I forgive you. Whenever you do that, whenever you're holding up the blood of Jesus for someone else, you are holding up the blood of Jesus, which is your forgiveness as well. That's why the two go together. 
It's, it's, not, it's not primarily in terms of the mechanism. Am I doing this enough so that God will do it for me? No, it's about the content. How do you forgive someone who has wronged you? You hold up the blood of Jesus. And if you're holding up the blood of Jesus, what are you holding up? Your forgiveness as well. Do you see that? That's why Jesus says, look, now that the temple's gone, we're gonna need forgiveness. Now that the temple is gone, we're gonna need forgiveness. And, this, and that's what he's come to do. If you say, I can't forgive my dad. I know I'm supposed to, I know, I know, but you don't know what he said about me. You don't know what he did to me. You don't know how many times he did it. Well, you're in effect saying, there's no blood shed for this. That's what you're saying. There's no blood shed for this. If you say, I cannot forgive, you're saying there's no blood shed for this. But if there's no blood shed for that, then there's no blood shed for you. There's only one blood. There's only one sacrifice. There's only one Christ. There's only one savior. Is his blood shed for you? Then it's shed for them. Is it shed for them? Then it's shed for you. It's a package deal. It goes together. There's no other way. That's the way it goes. But when you see the blood of Jesus shed for you, there can be no doubt that it is enough for them. But no one has ever forgiven or been forgiven by mere humanistic goodwill. There is only forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. We live in a sin-infested world, as you know, and having rejected the blood of Jesus, we have turned to all manner of schemes and theories to try to fix everything ourselves. We try to wash away our own sins, like trying to use soap on tattoos. And so our culture is quickly becoming a foul cesspool of guilt and shame and uncleanness. They're throwing therapy at it and money at it and political schemes at it and education at it. But we proclaim the blood of Jesus that cleanses every stain. Our nation is that woman with the flow of blood who suffered many things at the hand of many physicians but was only made worse. And so we proclaim the blood of Jesus, which is more potent than the most heinous sin and his righteousness, which is more contagious than all the filth in this world. Jesus came to make us clean. He died so that we might die in him, so that all our sins might die in him, so that might, when he rose, we might rise clean in him. So the charge this morning is to forgive one another. Have you been forgiven? Then forgive. Who is it that needs to be forgiven? Is it your father? Forgive him. Is it your mother? Forgive her. Is it your husband? Forgive him. Is it your wife? Forgive her now. Is it a son or a daughter? Forgive them. Is it a grandfather? Is it a grandmother, an aunt, an uncle, a coworker, a former boss, a teacher? Has Christ come? Is his blood shed? You say, I can't do it. Listen. 
It's not you doing it. What you're doing is you're holding up the blood of Jesus. Is his blood shed for you? Then hold it up. That's what it is. In many of these situations, there are places where they have asked for forgiveness and you won't give it. Or you've mumbled the words or you've mouthed the words, but you won't do it. And you need to do it now. They've asked for it. You're under the blood. Aren't you? That's what you're doing. You say, but what about situations where they're not asking for it? I would be willing to forgive my dad, but he won't ask for it. I would be willing to forgive my wife, my husband, they won't ask for it. Well, as much as it is possible, seek opportunities to raise the question, raise the concern with them. If it's humanly possible, can we talk about this dad? Can we talk about this mom? I want to be right with you. Can we talk about this son? Can we talk about this daughter? I want to be right with you. I want to be at peace with you. But even if they say, no, I'm not talking about it. I don't want to talk about it with you. You say, then what? then what you do, as far as it depends upon you, you have forgiveness ready for them. You have forgiveness ready for them. Why? Because the blood of Jesus is there. You have the blood of Jesus, so you have forgiveness. They haven't asked for it, fine. It's, think of it like a bottle of wine. And you put it up on the counter, put it up on the shelf, put it up in your cellar, and it has their name on it. So that when they come, when they come to the door, you say, I've got something for you. When they come and ask you, when they finally come, you say, here, I've been waiting all this time, not with bitterness, not with resentment, but with forgiveness. It's a good one. It's aged well. <laughs> and it's for you. Because Jesus died. Because he rode into Jerusalem. Because he came to become the new temple, the new sacrifice, the new priesthood the forgiveness of the sins of the world. Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday like that father in the parable, looking down the road for the son, glad to forgive, looking for an opportunity to forgive. This is good news for us, but of course it's also good news for the world. There is forgiveness in Christ. That's what they need. Why are they doing all these things to themselves? Why are they killing their babies? Why are they trashing their marriages? Why are they hating their children? Why are they rebelling? Why are they doing these things? Because they're guilty. Because they have a stain they can't get off. And so they're going mad. And the gospel is the good news that they can be forgiven. Jesus came, he died, his blood is shed. You can be forgiven. And so Jesus says, the temple's gone, proclaim the blood. The temple's gone, the priesthood's gone, proclaim the blood, proclaim the forgiveness. It's for all the nations of the world. Our God and Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he bled and died and took away our sin. And thank you that he did it also for our spouse, for our dad, for our mom, for our parents, for our grandparents, for kids, grandkids, anyone who's ever wronged us or harmed us. Father, we know there's blood for them so that they too might become clean. Father, we praise you. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray, singing. Why do we worship on Sundays? And why is Sunday the Christian Sabbath? Didn't God rest on the seventh day when he made the world on Saturday? Isn't that when Jews worshiped and rested? How did that change? 
The short answer is that we worship and rest and celebrate Sunday as the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday, the first day of the week. In fact, Hebrews says that Jesus has now entered into his rest since he has finished his work, just like God finished his, Hebrews 4.10. And when did Jesus enter his rest? When did he finish his work? He finished on Sunday, the first day of the week, when he rose from the dead. We also see something of a hint of this possibility in the two different versions of the fourth commandment given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus 20, Israel must remember Sabbath, it says, because God rested after creating the world. But in Deuteronomy 5, Israel is commanded to remember Sabbath because God brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, of course, both are true, and there's no contradiction between them, but the implication is that when God does something really, really great, his people should remember it by keeping Sabbath. And is there anything as great as the creation of the world or as great as the Exodus? Actually, there is. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God was a new creation and an even greater Exodus. We are new creatures in Christ because he has made a new creation. It's as though Christ grabbed hold of the old world, full of sin and guilt and death, and he pulled it down with him into the grave. And then having paid for our sins, crushing the head of the accuser serpent, Jesus broke the back of death and he rose up on the first day of the week, hauling that old world back up with him, except now it is becoming entirely new. And there, Mary meets him in a garden, mistaking him for what? For a gardener, for an Adam. And there on the first Easter Sunday, the world was born again. And Mary Magdalene represents the old world, formerly full of demons, meeting that new world in Jesus and being made completely new. Are you a sinner? Do you need to be made new? Then come. Are you a Mary Magdalene, tormented by demons? Come. Do you need to be made new? Come. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Happy Palm Sunday. <laughs> he is worthy of those words, even if we can't sing them. <laughs> As you go from this place, remember that Christ was crucified to make you clean, which is why we laugh, which is why it is all good, because we are clean. And in him, that cleanness has become entirely contagious, which means you can forgive those who have sinned against you and you can seek those, you can seek forgiveness from those who need to forgive you. So go now with that confidence, with that joy and with the blessing of your God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior who alone is wise. Be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. And God's people said,